Welcome. There's a study guide uh, all around the room. It says Malachi at the top. If you don't have one, if you can throw a hand up and anybody that has extras around him, I can take them back to anybody in the back. I think we might have them all. Does anybody not have one? Okay. There's a couple back there. If anybody's got a couple next to me, some of you guys could take them back there. Happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room. You guys know this, but we've been in uh, the book of Acts for a little while now. We're actually going to pause in the book of Acts for about six weeks, and we're going to walk through the book of Malachi together. You can go ahead and turn to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. We're actually going to walk through the book of Malachi together over the next six weeks. I would encourage you to be taking some time here and there to read through it. Maybe you could read through it several times over the next six weeks. Ask God to prepare your heart to study it together and meditate on it together on Sundays. And what we're going to go after today is an overview, sort of an introduction, an overview to Malachi. And we're also going to dig into the first five verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Let's pray as I get ready, as we get ready to read this and set this up together, okay? Let's pray. As we get settled in here, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you again, God, for your word. Lord, we are an ignorant people, an unwise people. We've proved it in all our actions, God, but your wisdom is perfect. You're perfect in every way, God, and your word is glorious. We love it, Lord. We praise you that we got the freedom even now just to open this book, to meditate on your truth together. God, please help us through, through weak minds, through weak tongues, weak preaching, God, through all these things. God, please speak to us, Holy Spirit. Please speak to us by your, through your word. Speak to us this morning. God, we know we need your help. God, to our shame, we have sat through the reading of Your Word, bored. And to our shame, God, we've sat through the preaching of Your Word, God, unmoved. And I pray, God, that You would help us not to do that this morning, but to be moved by Your Word. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide Thee, though the eye of sinful man Your glory may not see, only You are holy. There's none beside thee, perfect in power, love, and purity. That's who you are, God. And I pray that you would pull back the veil of darkness and pull back the, the veil of our own sinful hearts. God, pull back that veil and let us see you in your glory, perfect in majesty. God, help us this morning, please. Thank you, Lord, for such a blessing. Such a blessing to gather with the saints and read your word. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me try to see if I can set up the book of Malachi for us. So, starting off, I want to give us a, a, a historical setting uh, as to where this prophet Malachi, into what setting, what time period is he doing his proclamation, his preaching, his prophecy. So a historical setting here, if you think about the Old Testament, this may help some of you, might be new to some of you, might be old news to some of you, but if you think about the Old Testament as a whole, you've got the first 17 books, Genesis to Esther, first 17 books are the history, divine history laid out for us from creation all the way up into that time where Israel returned from exile, right before that 400 years of silence, as many people call it, and before the coming of Christ. So the first 17 books of the Old Testament is our divine history. Then you got five books of uh, writings, poetry, you know, Proverbs, Psalms, things like that, that people within that time frame of history wrote. And then you've got 17 on the back end of that, 17 prophets, prophetic books, okay? 17 of those. And those prophetic books, again, fit within that history, that divine history in the first 
17 books, and they fit at different places in that history. So the question is, where does Malachi, this book, where does his preaching land in the midst of that history? If you think about the Old Testament, so much of it is about a nation, the nation called Israel, an Israel that was born out of a promise that God created man and man rebelled against God, and then God gave a promise that through the seed of the woman, through the seed of Abraham, was going to come a Messiah, a Christ, that would bless all nations and destroy Satan and deliver us from sin. A promise was given, and born out of that promise comes the nation of Israel. And that promised one is going to come through this nation. It's the reason that they're raised up. So, so much of the Old Testament is a following of the nation of Israel. And if you remember, they've been, the nation of Israel has been through a variety of circumstances. Okay, so they were, they were enslaved in Egypt. Then they were delivered as a people out of Egypt. Then they walked through the wilderness for, for, for several years, 40 years. Then they, then they took over the land through the leadership of Joshua. And then they were led for about 400 years by judges as their own nation. And eventually a king came to rule over Israel, the king named Saul. Saul was dethroned and David came. That picture of Christ, David comes as the king of his people. And Israel becomes this superpower nation on earth and then his son Solomon becomes king still a superpower and then we get all throughout first and second kings and first and second chronicles generation after generation of the kings of Israel throughout the stages of history and then at the end of that time throughout the you got the kings and they're and the people of God the Israel Israelite people of God are walking in sin they rebel against God, and God begins to warn them that I'm about to take you out. I'm about to, I'm about to use a pagan nation, the, the Babylonian nation, and King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's going to come in, he's going to take you out. And here's what happens, and this is a big deal in the Old Testament, that that nation Israel is taken into captivity. They're taken into exile. And the prophets before said, you're going to go there, and you're going to be there for 70 years, and that's exactly what happened. That the people of God, at some point in their history, at the, we read about this at the end of 2 Kings, at the end of 2 Chronicles, that the Israelite people of God were taken into captivity. They were taken into, into exile. Their temple was destroyed. Their, their, their holy city was destroyed. And they're taken into captivity. And they're there for 70 years. As Jeremiah said, as other prophets had said, they're there for 70 years. And at the end of that 70 years, it says that God raised up a pagan king, Cyrus, to send them back into their land. And they go back into their land and they rebuild the temple. That's the book of Ezra. They rebuild the city and the walls. That's the book of Nehemiah. And those last three books of divine history of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are the end of that time where, where they've been restored. They've been delivered from exile in Babylon. They've been restored as the people of God in their land. It's the history of the nation of Israel. Now, these prophetic books, the last 17 books of the Old Testament, these, these prophetic books, typically people um, categorize them in, in three different places. Either they're pre-exile, prophets that prophesied before the captivity came in Babylon for 70 years. You've got the prophets that are right there in the midst of the exile, like Daniel. Isaiah came before. Daniel's right in the midst of the 70-year captivity. And then you got prophets that are categorized as those that are post-exile. Okay, These are the ones that prophesied after the people of God had come out of that captivity. They'd been replanted in their land. And you've got these post-exile prophets that are, that are proclaiming, thus says the Lord. And those prophets would be Haggai, Zechariah, and the one we're on today, Malachi. Now, you can read the book of Ezra and you see uh, Haggai and Zechariah proclaiming the word of God. You can read about that in Ezra. But what about, what about Malachi? Where, where, does, where does Malachi come to play here? And Malachi is the last of these Old Testament prophets here. He preaches right at the conclusion of the divine history laid out for us. He preaches right before that 400 years of silence and then the Christ comes as John the Baptist comes heralding his coming. So this is Malachi. He's at the very end of this history. If you think of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, it says, in many ways, various ways, at different times, 
The prophets spoke. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So the last link in the chain of these prophets is this man, Malachi. He preaches to the nation of Israel. Now how do we know to place Malachi in that setting? How do we know that? And there's internal evidence. You can read Malachi and you can come away with clues that help you know that. Let me give you three of them very quickly. One, the leadership in Israel. If you read chapter 1, verse 8, they are not being led by a king. He says, give this to your governor. They are led by a governor. Well, what point in history was Israel led by a governor? Ezra, Nehemiah. These, Nehemiah was actually a governor in Israel, so it's in that time period. A second clue. The temple, when you read through this book, Malachi, you see that the temple has been rebuilt, that, that the priesthood has been reestablished. In fact, chapter, chapter 1, verse 6, all the way to 2, 9, is, about, is, a, is a, a charge to this priesthood that's been reestablished. So where does that put us in the history of Israel? It puts us right there around Nehemiah's time, or maybe a little after Nehemiah's time, at the end of the history. Another thing you can, as far as evidence of that, if you read through Malachi, and you just start writing down, what are the sins that are being confronted with these people? What are the sins? And here's something you ought to do. Go back and read Nehemiah chapter 13. The very last chapter of Nehemiah, the very end of the divine history laid out, and you'll see those exact same sins, almost like they mirror each other in Nehemiah 13 and Malachi, those sins being addressed. So this, the time period of this book, the historical setting, is somewhere around Nehemiah's time or a little after Nehemiah's time. Now that's the historical setting. Now what about the prophet? we got these books, these 17 books of the prophets. What's, what's this about the prophet? The prophet is the mouthpiece of God. He's, he's the voice of God. He comes and he stands before men on behalf of God and he says, thus says the Lord. This is what God says to you. He's the mouthpiece of God. Now these, these prophets of old were a special breed of men. You read about them throughout the Old Testament, and you can, you can read about them in the historical books. You can read their writings, and their lives are marked by a holy boldness. Holy boldness. Like a sanctified edginess is on these men. These men do not care what people think. They are unmoved by criticism of men. These, these, these holy prophets, they, they're marked by obedience to God and proclamation of the truth. That's these prophets all throughout the Old Testament. They're constantly blasting inconvenient, uncomfortable truth into the ears of a godless nation. Constantly doing that. You can read some summary statements in Jeremiah and, and some other places. I'll give you one here. Jeremiah 35, a summary statement of what did all these prophets say? What kind of stuff did they say? Listen to this inconvenient, uncomfortable truth right into the ears of an ungodly nation. Listen. I have, I have spoken to you, God says, I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. I have sent to you, God says to Israel, I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently saying, listen to the, this is a summary statement of what they said, turn now, every one of you from his evil way and amend your deeds and do not go after other gods to serve them. So here's this uncomfortable truth. And this is a summary statement of what they said. They come in and they rebuke the sin of the people. They call out the sin of the godless nation. They stand up with boldness. These are these, these, are these prophets of old. They were usually despised men. In fact, they're probably the most irritating of men on the planet. Very despised men. The king of Israel said this about Micaiah, the prophet Micaiah. He said, I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. says, I hate him. Or the king also said this about the prophet Elijah. He said, oh, troubler of Israel. You're that one that troubles Israel because he stands up with boldness and he calls out their sin. Now what we're going to see with Malachi is Malachi certainly fits the bill. He certainly fits that as, he, as we read through this book and we see what is it that Malachi prophesied and he speaks with staggering truth staggering honesty towards these people's sin he even he even uh employs some holy sarcasm to drive home his point this is a man 
This stands up just in the, in the same line of the prophets of old. Malachi. Now, I don't, in me saying that, I don't want you to miss this. These prophets of old, they are everything that I just said, but, but don't miss this. They are also men with beautiful words of hope. You say, how do, you, how do these merge together? These are men of, with beautiful words of hope. Why do I say that? Luke, Luke 24, verse uh, verse 27, Jesus says that, it says that Jesus, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, so Jesus goes through the prophets, all these prophets, he says, he expounded to them in those prophets the things concerning himself. Jesus said that, that these prophets preached about me. And again, Malachi fits the bill. We're going to read about it as we come through Malachi, especially in chapter 3. When we see Malachi speaking about John the Baptist who's coming, and Malachi speaking about that messenger of the covenant, Jesus Christ, who will suddenly come to his temple. So these are men that speak truth with boldness, and they speak beautiful words of hope. Now, what's driving them? I want to talk about that for just a minute. What drives men like this, these prophets of old? And look at Malachi chapter 1, look at verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. That's how it starts off. <clears throat> so what's driving these men? This, this word right here, oracle, it's the word, it's the same as the word, for uh, some of your versions might say burden, the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel from Malachi. So think about this, the, the oracle, the burden. It's the idea of he comes with a burden. He comes with a load, something heavy that he is carrying, that he is going to pour out on these people. He comes with the burden, the burden of the word of the Lord. What drives these prophets? These were men that had burdens, men that carried the burden of God to the people of God. They, they were men of burden. The burden of the word of the Lord, it says. In other words, they were, more, they were more than intellectuals that just had sound teaching points. These are men that carried words with weight, men that carried a burden in their soul. Think about Elihu. You remember, let me read this to you in Job. Job chapter 38. This picture of a man with a burden. Listen to it. He carried the burden of the word of the Lord. Job, Job chapter 38. Verse 18. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got the wrong verse there. <clears throat> 32. If you're flipping there, 32. Listen to it. Elihu says, I am a man, I am full of words. The Spirit within me constrains me. Behold, listen to the words of Elihu. My belly is like wine, that has no vent, unvented wine, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Do you hear the burden in that man? Like, like, like Jeremiah, Jer Jeremiah 20, verse 9. He says, Jeremiah says, I'm not going to speak anymore about God. I'm not going to do that because every time I do it, they beat me, they throw me in the dungeon. I'm not speaking about him anymore. But then he says, but his word was like fire in my bones. I couldn't hold it back. I was weary of holding it back. See, these prophets carried a burden. Pull that to the New Testament. It's like Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 16. He says, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel because necessity is laid upon me. Necessity is laid upon me. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. These men carried a burden. It's what drove them. In other words, prophets were not just entertainers with, with polite little sermons that they preached. That's not what they were. They were men that carried burdens to the people of God. And as I thought about this burden of the word of the Lord, one thing that came to mind is I, you know, I, I don't believe that God is going to have any more uh, prophets like these prophets of old whose words are actually inscripturated into God's book. I don't think that there are any more prophets like that. But man, oh that God would raise up the spirit and the burden of these prophets on the people of God. That He would do that. There would be men and women that carry burdens like these men. 
Now, I want to forgive me if I let Charles Spurgeon make some application for us, because I think he says it better than I can. Let him make some application with us on this burden of the word of the Lord. This came from a sermon he preached. It's called The Burden of the Word of the Lord from Malachi 1.1. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. He says, The prophets of old were no triflers. They did not run about as idle tellers of tales, but they carried a burden. Those who at this time speak in the name of the Lord, if they are indeed sin of God, they dare not sport with their ministry or play with their message. They have a burden to bear, the burden of the word of the Lord. And this burden puts it out of their power to indulge in the levity of life. I'm often astounded at the way in which some who profess to be servants of God make light of their work. They jest about their preaching as if they were so many comedies or farces. The servants of God mean business. They do not play at preaching, but they plead with men. They do not talk for talk's sake, but they persuade for Jesus' sake. They're not sent into the world to tickle men's ears, nor to make a display of elocution, not to quote poetry. Theirs is an errand of life or death to immortal souls. They have something to say which so presses upon them that they must say it. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. They burn with an inward fire and the flame must have vent. The word of the Lord is as fire in their bones consuming them. The truth of God presses them into its service and they cannot escape from it. If indeed they are the servants of God, they must speak the things which, they, which they've seen and heard. The servants of God have no feathers in their caps. They have burdens on their hearts. And as I think about the burden of the word of the Lord, a prayer of mine has been that, oh God, would you do that with us? Would you make us like these prophets of old with burdens in our hearts for lost souls, burdens to take a message to a dark world? Would you do that with us, Lord? So we talked about the historical setting and these prophets of old, specifically Malachi. Now let's talk just for a moment by way of overview about the people that he's addressing here. Who are these people? What are they like? The people that Malachi is preaching to. Remember, these are post-exile people. So there's a lot of expectations. They may have read those prophets of old and, 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 and they might have been thinking about, man, what's to come next? They've got these high expectations. Will the Messiah come now? We've been returned from, from exile. We're back in our land. The temple's been rebuilt. The walls have gone back up. Will the Messiah come now? Will His kingdom come now? There's high expectations. And yet what we see is an ongoing, they're still subject to a pagan nation. Still subject to Babylon. They're still, or in this case, they're still subject to the Persian nation. Then they'll be subject to the Greeks, and then they'll be subject to the Romans. So, so there's these high expectations, and yet, and yet they're still ruled, conquered by a pagan nation. This is the people to whom he preaches. Now these people are a rebellious people. Listen to me. We can see this as we read through Malachi. If you just read through it, you can see that they are a rebellious people. Now they they have a shell of religion. They have a shell of religion about them. They still have a temple and sacrifices and a priesthood. They have a shell of religion, but they're cold towards God. They're cold towards God. They've got slanderous views of God. We're about to read a passage where they have a slanderous view about the love of God. Later on in chapter 2, verse 17, they say, where's the God of justice? As a way to malign this God, where's the God of justice? Where's He at? They have a slanderous view of God. They, they, they have terrible spiritual leaders. Chapter 1, verse 6 through 2, 9, as I said earlier, is a rebuke to the priests there in Israel. They have terrible, godless spiritual leaders. They're walking in sexual immorality, which is causing rampant divorce all across the nation. You see it in, in we'll see this in chapter 2. They, uh, Malachi at one point calls them spiritual prostitutes pretty much. This is what these people, this is the people that Malachi is preaching to. They are oppressors of the weak, according to chapter 3, verse 5. They're stingy lovers of money, as we'll see also in chapter 3, verse 6 and following. They're stingy lovers of money. And this is, this, think about these people, these godless, rebellious people. This is the audience that Malachi is preaching to in his time. Now, this book, Malachi, because of this, is broken up into what, what a lot of people have called disputations or or, or Malachi goes through the disputational method. And it's this idea that God makes a claim. We're about to see this in just a moment. God makes a claim, 
some truth claim. Then he says, but you say, and we get, we get the inner whispers of the people, these rebellious people. We get what they're really thinking. We get what they're really saying. So God makes a claim, and he says, but you say, and he says some claim about what they're saying that's wrong. And then God answers that claim. And it's this disputational method. And we're going to see that over and over again through Malachi. A claim made by God, and over and over again you'll see these words. But you say, but you say, but you say, and then God's going to answer exactly the things that they're saying. Now today we're going to look at the first disputation in chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. So I hope you have sort of an overview, an introduction to what's going on in Malachi. Now let's read chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. Again, the oracle or the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Did you see the disputation there? God makes a claim. He says, but you say, God says, I have loved you, but you say, how have you loved us? And God goes on to answer it in this chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. Now let's talk for a minute. Let's talk for a minute about the love of God. The love of God. How, how beautiful are these first words to a rebellious people? Look at them in verse 2. I have loved you. Think about that for a minute. These rebellious people, what's the first words in the book? This book that's a, a scathing rebuke to these people. And what's the first four words? God says, I have loved you. I've loved you. Let's talk about the love of God. First John twice says that God is love. God is love. In other words, this is His very nature, that God is love. Apparently, He's not just love in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, God is love. I have loved you. God says to these people. Now, what does it mean when it says, when he says, I have loved you? What does he mean? I'll give you two things here, just what it means. One thing it means is this, that, that God feels something towards them. God's love is a felt love. God feels something towards them. In other words, God's love is full of affections. Full of affections. We've seen emotions going wild and emotions misused, but listen to me. God created you with emotions because He's got them. You're created in His image and He has these emotions and here's God's love. He is filled with affections. It's what it means when He says, I've loved you. He's filled with affections towards you. Zephaniah 3.17. It speaks about, says, I will rejoice over you with singing Imagine those emotions in God. I will rejoice over you with singing. I will comfort you with my love. God's, God's love is filled with affections towards His people. Think about a father toward his children. Not just a father doing his children good and feeding them and taking care of them, but the heart of a father toward his children. He loves his kids. So one, he feels something. Two, two, it means He takes sacrificial action in expressing His love. In other words, God's not just sitting around feeling stuff, but He does something about it. He moves upon His love. We see that all throughout the history of His people Israel. You go read at the very end of that history. Go do this on your own time. Nehemiah chapter 8 and Nehemiah chapter 9. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, the people of God gather together, post-exile people of God. They gather together, and for several days, I think it's seven or eight days, they gather up and they read from the Word of God, the Old Testament, from morning till midday. They make it through the whole book in a week together. And then, and then Nehemiah 9 says, they burst out in praise and worship and song to this God. And if you read what they write in their, in their worship to God, they're going back through that course of history. And here's how it ends. Oh, the loving kindness of our God. God loves. 
of affections towards his people and actions all throughout the history of Israel, not, not to mention the New Testament. This is how we know what love is. Christ Jesus laid down his life for us. 1 John 3.16, he doesn't just sit around feeling stuff. He feels affections towards his people, but not only that, he moves and he delivers his people from hell by dying for their sins. This is how we know what love is. Do you understand the love of God? That His Son, that He would come, that He would plan to come and absorbs God, absorb God's wrath for you? It's the love of God. God's love is glorious. It's indescribable. I love the hymn, The Love of God. It says, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star. It reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill? Were the skies of parchment made? Were, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry? Nor can the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God is glorious. It's measureless. It's strong. It's the saints and angels song. It's what it is. It's glorious love of God. Do you feel that way? towards God's love for you if you're in Christ. I have loved you, he says. Now it's very important, it's very important that we don't lose sight. That's why I'm harping on this. It's very, very important we don't lose sight of God's love for us. Okay? Can't lose sight of this. Very, very important. Uh, There's a story, uh, Richard Wormbrand, a pastor several decades ago that was... uh, um, thrown into solitary confinement, thrown into prison, a pastor for preaching his faith, Richard Wormbrand. He suffered terribly. And I I heard him speaking recently where he was on a video, of course. He's going to be with the Lord now. But I heard him speaking about uh, how when he was in that solitary confinement, and it's nothing but darkness around him, he's suffering, he's not getting to eat much, that he would walk back and forth in his cell, and he would just preach sermons. He said the angels and God were his only audience and he would just preach sermons and he would remember truths and he would draw back to certain stories and preach those stories to himself. Draw back to verses he had memorized and preach those verses to himself. But then it goes on to say, Richard Wormbrand says this, that eventually they started drugging his food. So they put the food, they slide the nasty food into a cell and they, they put drugs in it to start messing with his mind. Messing with his head. And over years of that happening, time of that happening, he gets to where he can't remember anything. He can't remember those old sermons. He can't remember those verses he memorized. Those stories begin to move out of his mind. But I love it when that, that old man, suffering under, under persecution, he says, but I never forget this, that God is and that He loves me. That He loves me. It's very important, like Richard Warmbrand, that we do not lose sight of the love of God. I have loved you, God says. Now unfortunately, the people of Israel in Malachi's day had lost sight of the love of God. Right here in verse 2, if you read it, we see them doubting God's love. But you say, but you say, how have you loved us? Do you hear the doubt in their hearts? Do you hear it? But how, how have you loved us? Seriously, do you need proof of that, that God has loved you? They say, how have you loved us? Listen, you need to know this. Doubting God's love is certainly sin. It's sin. It's a mixture of unbelief and ungratefulness and slanderous thoughts about God. It's it's sin. I realize that that all of us have, have indulged in it at times. But we need to know that this doubting of God's love is sin. And it's a foundational sin. Right here we see it lurking right at the bottom of this laundry list of sins that Malachi gives. And the first thing he begins to confront, God begins to confront, is, is, is their doubt of the love of God. How have you loved us? It's a foundational sin. When this domino falls, how many other dominoes fall behind it? We see whispers of this in Genesis chapter 3. You remember that? The fall of man. And Satan comes in and he gives those those deceitful whispers. Has God indeed said you cannot eat of every tree of the garden? Is that what God said? No, no, he said we can't eat it. You know, she says, no, we just can't eat of this one tree. If we eat of it, we'll die. You'll not surely die, but God knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like him. You hear the whispers of the doubting of the love of God? God doesn't love you. He's holding something back from you. That's what he's doing. 
doubting the love of God right here at the foundation of sin. Now, what would cause these people to doubt the love of God? What would call these, cause these people in Malachi's day to doubt the love of God? You can mention several things. One thing might be expectations that are unmet. They had these expectations. They're back. They're back into the land. The, the walls are built. The temple's up. Here they are. What's coming next? And yet they stay under the rule of a pagan nation. Maybe some sort of circumstantial suffering. We read about in chapter 3 of Malachi, verse 11 through 13, about how the devourer has come and eaten up their crops. They look at the pagan, arrogant men, and they're just prospering. But look at us in our poverty. And so they begin, maybe they begin to doubt God's love for them. I think we can relate to that, right? What about you? What's happened in your life that caused you to doubt the love of God? The subtle serpent, what's he whispering in your ear that would cause you to doubt the love of God? Now God goes on to give proof of His love. So, here, how will God respond to their question? How is He going to answer? So they say, how have you loved us? And how is God going to respond? Now, it's loving that God even answers foolish questions like this, that he would stoop so low to answer these people. That's love in and of itself. But how is God going to answer the question, how have you loved us? We see that in verse 2, the second part of verse 2. Let's read it. God says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? That's interesting. Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we're shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I'll tear down. And they'll be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Now I want you to understand why God responded like this. I want you to understand why God responded like this. So let's Let's talk about the plain sense here of what exactly does God say in response, and then let's say, why did he say that? Let's understand what he said, plain sense, and let's get up underneath it and say, why did God say this as a response to the question, how have you loved us? So think about it like this. To, to answer the question, he, the first thing God does is he points them to a past event. You can see in his answer, past, present, and future. Okay, so he points them to a past event. Look at it. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? In other words, he points them back to Genesis. So Israel has a, 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 a the patriarch, one of these patriarchs, which is Jacob. They come from Jacob. So he points them back to Genesis, specifically Genesis 25, where you got Esau and Jacob and their brothers, he says. Were they not brothers? And they're in the womb of their mother, Rebekah, in Genesis chapter 25. Esau and Jacob, brothers, even twins, even twins in the womb of Rebekah. So, so to answer the question, God points their attention back to Esau and Jacob. And then he says, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. Now so far, interesting way to answer the question, right? How, how have you loved us? Look at Esau and Jacob. Aren't y'all brothers? Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Now then, God, what he does is he continues, so he goes from past to present, and he continues to expound on his hatred for Esau, his hatred for Edom. Okay, as Esau becomes a people, just like Jacob became Israel, Esau becomes Edom. So he begins to talk about present-day Edom. Keep reading right there in three, verse 3, in the second part of verse Three, look at this present reality. I have laid waste his, that's Esau, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Now, Malachi's audience would have understood this, right? Because the same people, the Babylonians, that took them captive in, into exile in Babylon are the people that routed the Edomites, Esau's descendants. So, past... Esau I've loved, and, and, and excuse me, Jacob I've loved, and Esau I've hated. Let me expound on that hatred. I have laid them waste right now. 
I've left their heritage to jackals of the desert. That's what I've done presently. Okay, then God's going to give us, he's going to continue to expound on his hatred for Edom by looking to the future, and we see that in verse 4. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord says, they may build, but I'll tear down. You hear that? He's glancing into the future, past, present, future. The future, now this, let me expound more on my hatred for these people. If they say, if they say, I'm going to rebuild, I'm going to tear it down. Keep reading. And they will be called the wicked country. What else will they be called? They will be called, keep reading, a people with whom the Lord is angry forever. A people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Now how terrifying to be an enemy, hated enemy of God. Interesting answer to the question, right? You with me on that? Interesting, interesting answer. So, so how have you loved us? Well, I despised Esau. I destroyed him. And I'll hate him forever. But I loved you. And, and weren't y'all twin brothers? Y'all see those points? I hated Esau. I destroyed him. And I'll hate him forever. But I loved you. And, and, and hey, weren't y'all brothers? Twins in the same womb? What's God getting at here? So let's get down to the why. We see God's answer, but why? Why does God answer in this sort of way? He's expressing his hatred, his hatred for Edom, but then, but then in, the, in the same breath of expressing that, he says, was not Esau the one I hated? Was he not Jacob's brother? Were y'all not twins in the same womb? You the one that I love? Were y'all not there? Do you, get, do you see what he's saying? Do you get what God is saying here? He's saying, Israel, I chose you. Look, you're not any different than Esau. You're not any different than Edom. What makes you different? I, cho I chose you. I chose, I chose Jacob. I, cho I chose Israel. I sent my love on you. This is the people that I hate, and in the midst of that, you deserve the same hatred, but I chose you in love. God, how have you loved us? And God points to election. The electing love of God, He points to, he points to election here. Now, I want you to think about it like this. Just try to go through those past, present, future. Um, Jacob, you were a scoundrel. He's a scoundrel just like Esau was, but I chose you in love. And by the way, the, the people that I hate, I've destroyed them, I've, I've, I've ruined them, that's what I've done. And it begs the question, God, why hadn't you dealt with us that way? Why have we been restored into the land of Israel? Why is it we've been restored, God? Because I chose you, I wanted to do that. Because I love you. Then we go to the future and he says, he says I'm gonna, I'm gonna, if they try to rebuild, I'm going to tear it down. They're going to be a people forever with whom God is angry forever. And it begs the question, God, why haven't you dealt with us like that? That's what we deserve. God says, because I didn't want to. I put my love on you. I set my love on you. I chose you. This is the idea here. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let me read this to you. It gives us a similar idea of God's love like this being expressed through God choosing those that don't deserve it. Listen, Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. For you are a people Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, even Edom, out of all those peoples, God has chosen you. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. Did you hear that? It's not your greatness that I chose you and set my love on you, He says. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And there's you a good picture of what God, what, what God is saying to me. I chose you. He's expressing His love. How have you loved us, God? God says, look at the doctrine of election. Look at election. Look at my electing power, my electing love towards you. Now I think that 
I think that's a little surprising to most. I want to make sure you believe me on that. This is the way Paul thought about it. Listen to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, Paul quotes that verse. I'm going to read verse 10. Listen. And not only so, this is Romans 9.10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah, okay, Rebekah, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, talking about Esau and Jacob, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, there's that word, election, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, that's Genesis 25, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, Malachi chapter 1. And so Paul also thinks about this in light of election. I believe that surprises many people. What would you say? If I said, how do you know God loves you? How do you know that? And you had to write me a bullet point list, what would be there? Now I do hope first thing you write down will be the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how I know God loves me. Look at the cross. But where on that list would be, because God chose me before the foundation of the world. I was a hated one. I deserved to be a hated one like Esau. And he chose me. He set his love on me. Where would that be on your list? In fact, I was, I was thinking about this, that so, some people who seem to despise the doctrine of election, their main objection tends to be it tends to be, this is interesting, it tends to be, well, the doctrine of election, it, it demeans the love of God. It demeans the love of God. That God chooses these, God chooses, it demeans the love of God. But isn't it, isn't it interesting that in Malachi chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, the question is, how have you loved us? And God points to the election and says, look, I chose you. It's an interesting thing. Here's what I want to do, and we're going to begin to close down like this because I, I want to take some time, with all that in mind, to ponder what does this passage teach us about the love of God, okay? I want us to worship God together right now. What does God's Word teach us about, what does Malachi 1, 1 through 5 teach us about the love of God? Now, now here's why I want to do this. I, I do not view... Grace Community Church as the same as the people that Malachi is preaching to. Now praise God for that, right? That God has worked a work in us that, that it would not be tagged that we are this sexually immoral, uh, uh, money-hungry, uh, wicked, spiritual prostitutes. I, I, I don't mean that we're not sinners. I just mean the, the degree of rebuke that's coming from Malachi. I don't see Grace Community Church in that way. But what's the first step to becoming like them? What's the first step to becoming like them? To doubt the love of God towards us? To doubt God's love towards you? And what's the first step to doubting God's love towards you? What's the first step there? N nobody goes from, man, I'm mesmerized with the fact that God loves me. Nobody goes straight from there to, I hate the love of God, I despise it. Nobody goes that route. What, what's the path they take it through? Indifference. Just indifference towards the love of God. Makes me yawn. Are you indifferent towards the love of God? Are you apathetic? Are you cold? Are you bored with the love of God? When's the last time your eyes were melted to tears over the love of God? That your heart was dissolved? When's the last time you lingered long in the sweetness of prayer because you caught a vision of the love of God? See, the first step to become like them it's just an indifference towards the love of God. So I, I want us to take time to say, what does this passage teach us about God's love? Let's ponder it for a minute. Now look, I want to lead us in worship in that. I'm a weak worship leader. I'm a weak, weak worship leader. But the greatest of all worship leaders is among us. Christ Himself. So, so listen to me. Lean in through the weakness of me talking about these things and let's worship God over who he, all over the love He has revealed Himself to have in this passage of Scripture. Let's praise God together, okay? i give you five points I believe you see here. Really quickly, it's on my heart to share this verse. Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. Listen, listen to this prayer. That you might have strength 
to know the depths and the height and the breadth and the length of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Did you hear that? My prayer, it says in Ephesians 3.18, my prayer is that you would know the depths of the love of God, that you know more of it. Why? It surpasses all knowledge. You never get to the bottom of it. But, but why? Why do I want you to go deeper in that? Why? That you might be filled with all the fullness of God. I hope that's a motivation for you to consider these five points. Number one, God's love is an electing love. It's an electing love. A good cross-reference to Malachi 1 would be a verse in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read it, verse 4. Ephesians 1, 4 says, He chose us, listen to it, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, catch that, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And listen to this, it's not just a mechanical choosing. It's not just a robot choosing and not... Listen, listen to this next line. In love, affections poured out towards the objects of His love. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world... It's not mechanical. In love. This is the, the electing love of God where the choosing of God and the love of God are melded together in the Bible. They should be in your hearts and minds. It's an electing love of God. In love, He predestined you. Can you imagine it? Could you get in the mind of God before time began and you come to His mind and He's filled with fatherly affections towards you? Is that not nuts? It's the electing love of God. Now, I realize, let me say this quickly, some people have a problem with that phrase in Malachi 1. It says, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. And they'll say, look, I got a problem with that phrase. Esau I've hated. Does that say Esau? Did this, did, did this say God hated Esau? Esau I hated? And they say, that shocks me. And this is my first response. The more shocking thing is this phrase. God loved Jacob. Do you know how shocking that is? Not that he hated Esau, but that he loved Jacob. The, the thing that's inconceivable is that he would love a scoundrel like Jacob. It makes sense that he would hate Esau. We, he has earned the hatred of God, just like we have all earned the hatred of God. What's crazy is that he would love a man like you and me. We love people like us, a man like Jacob. The electing love of God, so... Grace Community Church, can you believe that? Do you believe that? That God, in love, predestined you to adoption of His Son, chose you before the foundation of earth. Do you believe that God leans in, He leaned into you like that? you really believe that? He, that He loves you? Do you really think that way? Has that connection been made between the choosing of God and the love of God, that, that He set His love on you? Think back to when you were saved. I can think back to when I was saved and friends and family and people that I was close to that even now are heading deeper and deeper into sin and closer and closer to the end and to hell. That's where they're going. And the question has to come to my mind. Why not me? I'm just like them. I'm not different than these people. I'm not more worthy than them. It's like Jacob wasn't more worthy than Esau. Why did God choose me? Have you ever thought about that? Think about your salvation. Why did God choose you? And he just set his love on you, it says. Now, I think something that helps me get a feel for that, that connects the electing love, or the election and the love of God, here's something that helps me get a feel for that. Uh, my children, I say this to them oftentimes, uh, and I can start saying it now, and they know what I'm about to say. And I'll say something like this to them. I'll say, you know, Keely, uh, Keely, if somebody came to me and they said, I got all, all these little girls, all, all these little girls, or Samuel, Samuel, if somebody came to me and said, Samuel, here's all these little boys, they're just as good as Samuel, they're just as good as Keely, they're just as good as them, and I'll give you all 100 of these if you just give me Samuel, if you just give me Keely. And I look at my kids and I say, you know what I would say? And they know what I would say. I say, heck no. I don't want them. I choose you. I want you. It might be a weak illustration, but maybe that's a feel that you ought to get when you think about the electing 
love of God. I'll give you another picture of that. Uh, Randy Phillips was a man who, who uh, loved Christ, discipled a lot of men that I know, and he went home to be with the Lord several years ago. And at his funeral, I remember his oldest son, James, James Phillips. I remember him, him speaking at the funeral. And he's remembering moments of his dad's love for him. And listen to this story that comes out. I'll say it quickly. He remembers his dad getting an opportunity to coach in the NFL. And they called him up. Randy wants you to come coach in the NFL. He got a chance to do that. And, of course, James, young James, about eight years old or so, is thinking, of course, Dad's going to do that. He's gonna, my dad's about to coach in the NFL. And, 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 and the team starts sending in this, uh, you know, this memorabilia-type stuff. And they get this big box of, of stuff. So James is getting excited, you know, that the Dad's about to be a coach for the NFL. And, and, and Randy, Mr. Randy, takes his son on a walk one day. He's about eight years old. And, and this is what stuck out to James is, is his dad's love for him. So he took him on his walk, and he said, James, I'm not taking that job. I'm not taking that job. And James says, why, Dad? Why are you not taking that job? He says, because I don't want to coach other people's boys. I want to coach you. And here's what comes to my mind. A fatherly electing in love. I choose you. In love, I choose you. Can you imagine God like that towards you from before time began? In love, he predestined us to adoption of sons. Number two, God's love is free to the wrath-deserving. And notice I didn't say the undeserving. I didn't say the undeserving. We are all undeserving, but we're worse than undeserving. We are wrath-deserving people. But this is, Malachi 1 shows us God's free love to the wrath-deserving people. Think about it. Jacob I loved. Why Jacob? He's a wicked man. Because I just want to. He says to Israel, Israel, I have loved you. Why, Israel? These are the most stiff-necked people on the planet. God told them that. He says, I just love you. That's why. That's why I choose you. If God has set His love on you, it's not because you have earned it. It's free, unmerited love from God. If God set His love on you, it's not because of your merits. Not at all. Not even a little bit. You haven't earned even a moment of His love. Not at all. It was free to you. And think about this. Romans chapter 5, verse, verse uh, 7 and 8, it says that nobody dies even for the righteous, even for a good person. But listen to how God just, just demonstrates His love in that while we were sinners, don't you know He saw your filth? He didn't make a mistake. He didn't die for you not knowing how bad it really was. He knew it better than you did, the filth that you are, and yet He lays down His life for you, shows His love for you, and that while you were sinners, Christ died for you. And what does that mean for you now? You think like, God, you know, we didn't have to earn it then. God freely loved us and set His love on us, but now you need to keep it up. Now you need to earn it. You need to make sure He keeps loving you by you acting right, right? Listen to me. He knows your filth even now. God doesn't love some future version of you. He loves you in Christ Jesus. He loves you now. Affections towards you, actions towards you now. It's a beautiful thing. Number three, God's love is corporate and individual, and I want to focus on the individuals, corporate and individual. In Malachi 1, he says to Israel, the corporate body, I've loved you, but then he also says, Jacob I've loved, that individual soul. Israel I've loved, and Jacob, that individual soul, Jacob I've loved. So not only the church, not only does Jesus, not only does he love the church, but he loves every individual soul in that church. And that's a glorious thing. I want the picture in my mind as a father good father a good daddy who loves his family so he loves this corporate entity you know his family he loves his family but at the same time he gets down on his knee and he tells his daughter come here come here and with tears in his eyes running down his cheeks he looks at her right in the eye and says i love you not just the family but you this is why paul could say that christ loved me and gave himself for me in Galatians 2.20. Christ loved me and He gave Himself for me. This God of glory, He's not, He doesn't just love the idea of you or y'all, but Tyler. He loves Tyler. And Jeremy. And 
Ashley. He loves you. Number four, God's love is a protecting love. It's a protecting love. Think about the love of God. Now, where do we see this in Malachi chapter 1? It makes more sense the more you understand Esau and Edom. If you do a word study on Esau and Edom, you're going to find out that this was a wicked group of people that constantly attacked and oppressed Israel. That's who these people were. Israel would have known that. They lived it. And we know that by studying the Bible, that these people were a wicked people. So you need to understand this. Make sure this is clear in your mind. God did not unjustly hate sweet little Esau. God didn't unjustly you know, you know, hate uh, this sweet little, precious little nation of Edom. He didn't do that. They earned the hatred of God. Just like we have. Just like every one of us have earned the hatred of God. Now this is why I say God's love is a protecting love, though, because that's what's happening in Malachi chapter 1. In Malachi chapter 1, God is saying, these people, these Edomites, they messed with the wrong people. They messed with the bride of God, the bride of Christ. And God took them out. He said, He left them in ruins. It's a protecting work of God. I would encourage you to go read Obadiah. Obadiah is a whole book. It's a short one, but it's a whole book that's, that's dedicated to the Edomites, to Edom. And you go read the protecting love of God. He talks about the Edomites that violently oppressed his people, his bride. He pretty much says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to rip your arms off. I'm going to feed you to the wolves. Go read Obadiah and the protecting love of God. So Grace Community Church, how, how does this, how does this uh, apply to us? Listen, God has love, affections towards you, and it is a protecting love. If you're in Christ, there's a protecting love towards you. What do you mean? He protects you from sin. He who began a good work and you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. He protects you from Satan. Yes, Satan wants to destroy you, but you also have a great high priest who always makes intercession for you. Always. So that you might be saved to the uttermost. The reason you persevere as a Christian to the very end is because God has protecting love over you. He's holding you fast to the very end. He's still choosing you. He's still setting His love upon you. I want you to think about that. You, you guys, we've been in the same church long enough to know that, that people all around us, some inside the church, a lot outside the church, that all around us, people are falling away. Do you see that? You know, even a member of our church from years back that's moved off somewhere, is living an openly homosexual life right now. People that said they love love Christ and now they they deny Him right now. This is happening all around you and it begs the question, why not you? Why aren't you being led astray to heresy? Why aren't you being led astray to godless living that condemns you to hell? Why not you? Because God set His love on you. His protecting love has been set on you. That's why. Number five, lastly, God's love is an everlasting love. It says in Malachi 1.4, listen, the people with whom the Lord is angry for how long? It says forever. The people with whom the Lord is angry, it says forever. Now that's a contrast with the people of God. The people of God with who God loves forever. So these people are the people with whom God is angry forever, but, but God's love is everlasting. Jeremiah 31, 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. With loving kindness, I have drawn you, he says. That the people with whom God has favor, that God has loved forever. So think about that. His affections for you are full now. I will rejoice over you with singing. I will comfort you with my love. It's full for you now, and it's going to be like that in all throughout eternity. What do you think it's going to be like when you see Christ? I want you, have you ever thought about this? I know that so many of you are longing to see Jesus, that you feel it in your, in your very soul, that I just cannot wait till I get to see my Savior face to face. The Bible says I'll get to see Him face to face. I will see Christ high and lifted up, and I long to see Him. But have you ever thought about this, that He longs to see you? What kind of reception do you think you'll get? (laughs) 
What, what kind of reception? You, you step into glory. You see him face to face. Do you expect to see indifference in his eyes? Or a burning love towards you that's been there from eternity past and has never grown cold. And it's towards you now and in all of eternity. What do you expect to see when you see him face to face? It's the love of God in Christ. I'm just going to close by reading this verse. Verse 5 reminds us that this is all about the greatness and glory of God. Everything we're talking about, God's God's name has been slandered in Israel. God's love has been slandered in Israel. He's been slandered. They're not thinking rightly about God. When you got doubt about God's wisdom, that means you've been slandered about the mind of God. When you've got doubt about God's power, that means you've, you're not thinking right about the mighty hand of God. But listen, when you've got doubt about God's love, you're not thinking right about His heart. And so here's this correction that comes in. I've loved you and I've chosen you. I've set my love on you. And this is what it's all about, and I'll close with this verse. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, and here's what we, here's, God, get us here. Keep us here. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's stop there. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for, for these truths. These truths in your word. God, I'm trying to describe your love that is indescribable. We're trying to know the depths of your love which surpasses understanding. God, help us. God, help us. Oh, God, help us. I just think about that line in that song again, Lord, that though the darkness hide thee, Though the eye of sinful man your glory may not see. Oh God, rip, rip open the veil. Don't let the darkness hide your love for us, God. Help us to see. Help us to see in deeper and deeper ways day after day. Help us, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.